0: From the Atlanta Journal Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, Georgia's Division of Family and Children's Services has been the focus of intense criticism. Now, Georgia Senator John Ossoff is holding bipartisan hearings that have exposed some shocking findings. Senator Ossoff joins us to discuss what he's learning.
1: I'm Patricia Murphy. We'll ask Senator Ossoff about the report that nearly 1,800 foster children were reported missing from the system between 2018 and 2022.
2: DFACS asked judges to consider locking up children with special needs in juvenile detention centers.
3: Yes. I'm Tia Mitchell. Marjorie Taylor Greene has been on the campaign trail rallying support for Donald Trump in New Hampshire. And in Washington, she's in a war of words with Palestinian-American Congresswoman Rashida Talib.
4: I'm Bill Nygut, an Alabama Trump loyalist is facing federal charges after making violent threats against Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis.
0: We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. I know Patricia, in my household, there is nonstop preparations, really for the last month for Halloween tonight, as both my girls have meticulously planned their outfits with their best friends it's going to be uh, the party in my neighborhood starts at four p.m.
1: Yeah, it feels like Halloween is the new Christmas because there are decorations and there's food and there's pre-parties and then there's the day of. Like it's so much, and I love every single bit of it. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, my daughter is going as a girl pirate, and my son is going as a banana.
0: <laughs> See, I know there's talk about uh, kidulting. I guess now <laughs> I've, I've seen that that phrase uh, gain some traction as. Yeah. You know, are you I'd rather, gonna...
3: no, I'd rather just do adulting. So think. um I did bring I did <laughs> pack a Halloween costume just in case I got an offer I couldn't refuse. So it's um the character Robin from the movie Waiting to Excel. It's her iconic white dress with the diamond cutouts. <gasps> so I can be Robin for Halloween if I get the right invitation. I'm gonna stick
0: with the grown-ups though. I
3: grown-ups. need photos. I need photos.
0: Bill, your kids are all grown. Yeah.
4: What, what? He, but it's, well, so yes, they are. They're gonna go out and do Halloween parties. But here's what I've been thinking about. Every time I've gone into Home Depot for the last month, I've seen the displays of those gigantic audio animatronic <laughs> skeletons and other figures, and I thought. I'd really like to have one of those on my front lawn. And then I look at the price tag and say, never mind. <laughs> well, They're expensive. It's an
1: investment bill. <laughs> well, <laughs> but
0: my question for you is, what what candies does the Nygut household give out? Oh. Are you giving out like full, the full bars, bars? The full bars.
4: We give out uh, candy. We give out uh, mini, mini candies. Everything from Nestle Crunch Two little Reese's, pieces, uh, bags, that sort of thing. Why? What about you?
0: We just give the fun bag, you know, sort of grab bag mix. But when I was a kid, there was a rumor that a very famous basketball player who kind of lived around the corner from one of my cousins— would sign basketballs and give wow. you know, full candy bars. So one year we went to his house and it was not, a, it was not.
4: Wait, what do you mean game. a very famous, what are you trying to protect the anonymity of this basketball? Well, cause,
0: Cause maybe he did give out uh, signed basketballs to other people other than me. I don't want to completely reject the fact that the, the, the the idea that this famous basketball player um, did give out some of that, but not to me, not to Just me and not my cousin. for you. Yes. Yeah. Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Georgia's Division of Family and Child Services has been under scrutiny for a very long time now, criticized for failing to protect children placed in foster care. Late last year, Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Catherine Landrigan documented some of the heartbreaking cases of children who died or were treated inhumanely while in foster care. Now, Georgia Senator John Ossoff is holding, is heading up a bipartisan investigation of the state for foster care in Georgia and, and across the nation. Among his most serious findings, Patricia, is that here in Georgia, close to 1,800 children in the care of the DFAC system were reported missing between 2018 and 2022.
1: Yes. And those are documented cases that doesn't even cover the cases that were not documented. Um, I think it gets to the heart of the many, many challenges of the foster care system here in Georgia. Um, number one, these are often children in crisis coming from crisis. Um, we have sort of a patchwork of foster care um, uh, placements. We don't have enough And we don't appear to have a system that can take care of all these kids. This has been a problem for a long time. The fact that there's now a federal investigation by Senator Osloff, as well as a DOJ investigation, um, I think is uh, points to all of those
3: things. Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting in our AJC coverage, both by Catherine and Maya Prabhu as well, is the number of foster care children that are sleeping in government offices. Because there's not a bed for them. There's not placement for them. So their home, at least temporarily, is a office space. I guess with cots maybe and security guards mm-hmm. at night. Yeah. And, and that's just just crazy. There's to think even,
1: about. I'm sorry, I did not mean to interrupt you. Um, there's even a name for it. They call it hoteling. It's a process that is so frequent. They're trying to do it less and less, but there is a name for that because it is something that they certainly rely
0: on. Exactly. It's called hoteling. It typically costs the state $1,500 per child per night. It often ties up social workers, doesn't give children any sort of stable environment they need. Um, and it's a practice that has made, been made worse by the pandemic and all the staff shortages. And I'm glad you brought that up to you because yesterday there was a hearing here in Atlanta uh, held by Senator Ossoff and and others um, that revealed that two judges at that hearing testified that the head of the state's division of Family and Children's Services asked them to effectively break state laws by keeping children in juvenile detention centers rather than send them um, to these hoteling uh, uh, sites. Bill, these allegations made under oath um, came as the state is working to reduce the number of foster children in hotels or offices because Georgia just can't find anywhere else to put these kids.
4: Yes, and 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 Senator Asoff again heard of a bipartisan it's a bipartisan hearing and he's been looking into the problems and as you pointed out, Greg, the findings some of the findings are shocking. One of the things I'll be interested in in hearing when he joins us is it feels like an intractable problem. What are the solutions? How We need more foster families, but to be a foster parent is a very challenging uh, position to put oneself in. Um, so I, I just wonder how you begin to correct this very difficult issue. And then I think about these young people and what kind of futures they have given the way they have moved through the system, sometimes unsafely, uh, it it's really troubling to think about where their lives might
0: be headed, Tia. We know there's been legislation and proposals that aim to make it harder um, for judges to take uh, to to order that children be put in the foster care system if uh, in certain situations. Um, but some of the judges say this legislation just isn't working,
3: and this, to me, brings me to the bigger picture, which is about, Where do we put our resources, both at the state level and at the federal level? Because a lot of this comes down to money, Um, money to pay staffers better to perhaps increase staff retention, money for facilities for um, children, Uh, group homes, money to incentivize people to become foster parents. And I go back to a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about the incentives for the movies to be brought and how some people say the state could use those resources for other purposes. That's what we talk about when we talk about these are it's not right or wrong. But every day our state and federal elected officials are making judgment calls about where what they're going to prioritize their money on.
1: I think also, my biggest question coming out of this series of hearings, because there' have now been multiple from Senator Ossoff and his colleagues, um is this situation in Georgia? is this a result of negligence? or is this a result or is this a situation that is just so difficult? They haven't found the right funding levels, the right people, the right processes to get to the bottom of it. But at the end of the day, you cannot have a child sleeping in an office building just because they're hard to place. um, It's easy to say it's much harder to solve, but I, 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 that is my question. Is this negligence or is this a problem that just continues to need to be worked out?
0: Well, we are bringing the Senator on right now. Thank you, Senator Ossoff for joining us on our debut week on politically Georgia here on WAB. We really appreciate it.
2: Hey guys, and congratulations on this exciting new program. Uh, and I know we want to jump into, uh, the discussion of some of these heavier issues and, and we will do that, but, uh, uh, Greg, I wanted to let you know that Eva is going to be a, a purple butterfly uh, for Halloween, and uh, I'm really eager to hear what the girls are going to dress up as.
0: Well, if they need a babysitter, my my kids are around. Uh, well, well, Senator, you know we've talked about some of the findings of the hearing so far, including the the accusations, the the, the comments by judges who said effectively that they were told to, to break state laws, and the alarming number of children uh, that that were reported missing while in state care. Um, but Bill alluded to this earlier. What, what's the remedy? I mean, what, what, what solutions do you hope to get out of these hearings?
2: Well, solutions is certainly the goal. I think it's too soon to define the specific policy remedies, uh, either at the federal or the state level. And just stepping back for a moment, uh, I have built a really positive working relationship uh, with uh, my Republican ranking member on the subcommittee, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, And we put our heads together at the beginning of the Congress to try to decide what we could work on together, because I think that investigative work is always better when it's bipartisan. And we both agreed that there was a moral imperative to dive into child welfare and foster care issues, because these are big problems across the country. Uh, We've been at this now for about eight months. We have spoken with over 100 people uh, reviewing thousands of pages of documents to understand if, why, and how the most vulnerable young people in our state and across the country uh, are facing serious risk of abuse, of neglect, of abandonment, uh, and how we can improve the systems that are meant to be a sanctuary uh, for kids who really have nowhere else to go. We held our first public hearing uh, last Wednesday. Uh, We heard from a woman named Rachel Aldridge, whose two-year-old daughter, Brooklyn, had been murdered while in care, uh, and the proper background checks had not been carried out. Her warnings had not been heeded. Uh, We heard from uh, an amazing young woman named Monet who had been in, I think 16 placements over the course of her time in care, only two of them homes who described really shocking conditions in some high security institutional settings. Uh, and, uh, just the sense of of loneliness and fear and confusion that she felt. And and on Friday, I went over to Covenant House, which is a really extraordinary institution in Georgia that supports youth who are experiencing homelessness and who have been victims of trafficking. And I sat down in private uh, with some former foster youth who told me about their experiences. And these are just heart-wrenching conversations uh, about abuse, about Children who are in fear, who don't know what's happening to them and why, who feel that they have uh, no one to turn to. Uh, And we heard in our hearing earlier this week from several judges who described uh, a system that by their account is is failing to protect uh, the children who are the most vulnerable. But to your question about solutions, look, my my theory of the case here is that uh, positive change begins with the truth. And you know the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has been doing pretty extraordinary investigative work on this subject for a while. And a, and a big part of what motivates the urgency of this inquiry is that whether it's the AJC or other local press or watchdogs and advocates, uh, folks have been sounding the alarm for a long time. And it's an issue, you know, when we're talking about kids and vulnerable kids, that really demands... Uh, this kind of attention. Um, And, you know, my hope is that at the end of this process uh, that we're able to put together some really constructive suggestions uh, and work with partners to try to implement them to prevent vulnerable children from facing some of these dire outcomes.
1: Senator, it's Patricia Murphy. Uh, You have laid out just a really alarming situation here in Georgia, um, as have our colleagues at the AJC, of course, I don't know if it's too soon to tell, but what are your early takeaways in terms of what exactly is going on here in the state? Is this a case of a state oversight that is neglectful? Is it a case that it's just an incredibly difficult systemic issue to mission situation to deal with with these children who come from such terrible homes or even have been trafficked themselves are and are really desperate in the way that they are? Coming through this, do you have any early takeaways about where you think this investigation could be going?
2: Well, this is extraordinarily difficult work. Uh, Foster care agencies across the country have a very tough mission. And one thing that I that I want to make clear is that, you know, my impression is that caseworkers uh, across Georgia, um, who, according to the testimony from judges and others we've spoken with and advocates, uh, are under-resourced, often don't have sufficient training, uh, are handling a large number of very challenging cases. I think I think in the vast majority of cases are doing their level best to do right by kids, uh, and I, I don't want to give the impression that you know this this entire workforce, which has a really difficult task, isn't committed to that. I think the questions are are systemic. The questions are at the policy level. Um, But the bottom line is that we're in in the fact-gathering phase right now, Uh, and this effort's ongoing, and and these are national issues. Uh, And and Georgia is an instructive case study, of course. Being from Georgia, I'm going to focus on um, the most vulnerable children in my state. But Georgia is an instructive case study that I believe can also yield insights that may help other states across the country uh, to implement reforms to protect the most vulnerable children.
3: Hi, Senator Ossoff. It's Tia. Hey, Tia. I'm um used to bothering you in person, but um You you're... never bother me, Tia. <laughs> you're in Washington. The Senate's in session today. Um you're got you guys are gonna take a vote on whether to confirm Jack Lew as the ambassador to Israel, but there's also the conversation about emergency aid for Israel and whether that should be linked with more aid for Ukraine a lot of Republicans are criticizing Senator McConnell for wanting to keep them linked. What is your thought on whether they should be linked? And do you think there's going to have to be the decoupling that House Speaker Johnson says needs to happen?
2: I think it remains to be seen what uh, the order of business on the floor will be. Uh, And You know, we're we're still trying to get a feel for what the new speaker wants to accomplish and how he's going to approach his job. Um, From my position on the Intelligence Committee, uh, I am uh, actively monitoring the unfolding events in the Middle East, uh, not just day by day, but literally hour by hour. Uh, And, you know, what I can report to you is that this is an extraordinarily dangerous and volatile situation. Uh, And of course, Georgians were shocked and united in our grief, in our outrage at the cold-blooded massacre of more than a thousand Israeli civilians by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. We have now uh, an acute humanitarian crisis in southern Gaza and a real urgency at standing up a humanitarian operation uh, that... Uh, can meet the needs of hundreds of thousands of displaced people uh, in an area where there are acute and worsening shortages of key goods, commodities, medical supplies, uh, clean water. There's a real risk that with the lack of access to clean water uh, in Gaza, that in addition to uh, the civilians who are being wounded uh, by ongoing combat operations, that we could have the outbreak of diarrheal diseases uh, and other acute health crises uh, associated with lack of access to sanitation. And, and you know, I led 35 senators about two weeks ago, urging uh, sustained flow of humanitarian relief to these displaced and, uh, and in many cases injured uh, civilians who are in acute distress, innocent Palestinians, and at this time we are not seeing adequate flow through the Rafah border crossing of that aid. It's something that I raised yesterday in a meeting with the Israeli ambassador. Uh, The other point I want to make is that we have, and this is something folks need to be attentive to, a real risk of escalation uh, of this conflict broadening onto multiple fronts. Uh, and of instability and conflict in the broader Middle East uh, with very significant implications for U.S. national security in the global economy. Uh, so I am uh, attentive and actively engaged in the efforts to chart a course uh, towards solutions that are consistent with the U.S. national interest. And this is a very dangerous situation.
4: Senator, uh, it's Bill um, it, in, in Talking about Israel – Um, I know you don't want to get into the House's business in any depth, but I I do want to ask you a question about a subject we're going to take up a little bit later in the program today. Um, There is an effort in the House to censure uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib for talking about Israel, even in the face of this barbaric attack on Israel as an apartheid state, just in a more general way. To what extent, how do you react when you think of members of Congress who either say, as Marjorie Taylor Greene has, I don't want to continue funding Israel, or a Talib who says, I think Israel is an apartheid state. How do you react to that when you hear those comments?
2: Bill, I stay focused on what I say and my words Uh, And as I think everybody on this program knows, I choose my words very carefully Uh, and I uh, try to root my statements and analyses and actions in fact, and with a relentless focus on the safety, security, and interests of my constituents in the United States. So, uh, you know, that there's, there's a lot of chatter in the political arena always. Uh, What I'm accountable for uh, are my words and my actions.
0: Senator, I'm curious, you know, as the first Jewish senator in in, in Georgia history, U.S. US senator, how you balance this historic role and the competing, you know, there's a lot of folks who are pulling and tugging and pushing and pulling for your attention on issues like this. This is the first time since you've been, uh, since you were elected back in the 2021 runoff where Israel' has been in a situation like it is right now with a, uh, a widening Hamas- Israel war and a potential, as you mentioned earlier, for it to, to become a more regional conflict. How are you' balancing your historic role uh, with your duties as a U.S Senator?
2: Well, first and foremost, I have obligations uh, to the United States and to my constituents in Georgia to keep this country and our state safe and secure from threats, uh, and politics can't intrude upon the responsible and diligent and vigilant conduct of foreign policy. Um, And so again, as a member of the Intelligence Committee, that's my relentless focus. How do I keep our nation safe and my constituents safe? But I, I do want to just reflect on some of the very difficult and important conversations that I've had With leaders in the Jewish and Muslim communities in Georgia over the last several weeks uh, where there is a lot of pain and fear and concern and what I say to them in private and what I want to urge in public here uh, is that at times like these it's more important than ever that we ground ourselves in our commitments to mutual tolerance love and respect Uh, And our recognition of one another as fellow human beings, as fellow Americans, uh, and that the fear and anguish and uncertainty that so many are feeling uh, about this terrible conflict not manifest as hate or mistrust or a loss of touch with those common bonds that bring us together in Georgia and across the country.
0: Senator, we know you have to go soon, but... One last question. Georgia lawmakers were ordered to redraw the political boundaries and create more majority black districts just last week by a federal judge. And lawmakers are expected to come back in uh, in late November. Uh, are you concerned that Republican lawmakers won't heed the judge's order or, or they'll take other steps to preserve either their incumbents? Or do you think that they will take more aggressive steps to redraw the districts and, and follow the judge's, judge's ruling?
2: Well, I don't know what the state legislature is going to do. But I think black voters in Georgia are offended that the state legislature drew maps, which a federal judge found diluted their voting power. Our democracy is premised upon the basis of one person, one vote, equal representation and equal access to the ballot. And if state legislatures are drawing lines in order effectively to disenfranchise certain communities, uh, that's wrong. And I think that that uh, reasonably uh, creates mistrust between the public and those who are elected to serve them, because those who are elected to serve are not elected to uh, engineer outcomes, whether it's uh, the way folks vote or what districts folks live in that benefit politicians. The purpose of these systems is to benefit the public and to ensure the public has representation.
0: Well, Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you. Take care.
0: Thank you. When we come back, Marjorie Taylor Greene is all in for Donald Trump as she stumps for him in New Hampshire and beyond. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, she's in a fight, as we mentioned, with Rashida Tlaib over what she sees as Tlaib's anti-Israel stance. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Tia is the Washington Correspondent No one has been following Marjorie Taylor Greene closer than you. But of course, she's also gained plenty of national attention from her campaign for Congress way back when to right now. What do you think of her efforts? She's in New Hampshire as we speak uh, to step up and try to be one of Donald Trump's top surrogates around the nation right now.
3: I actually think uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's alliance with Trump, her friendship with Trump is mutually beneficial. Um, He gets someone who's willing to go on the attack on his behalf, who has supported him in every single thing he's tried to do, including overturning the 2020 election. And she's someone who has deep ties within that far right, hard right. Um, um, I'm not saying she's QAnon, but the QAnon types of people in the Republican Party they like and trust Marjorie Taylor Greene. So that's why it benefits Trump. But it benefits her because we've been talking all year about how she has um, started forging these relationships in the establishment. And she was close with Kevin McCarthy. And she started to take positions like uh, voting in favor of certain types of government funding that ultra-conservative hardliners wouldn't want her to vote in favor of. And by remaining... In this alliance with Trump, that has inoculated her somewhat from this criticism, because at the end of the day, she can say, well, Trump has my back. I'm still with Trump. And we know that Trump really is the leader of the party. A lot of Republican voters, it's all about loyalty to Trump. So as long as she stays on Trump's good side, that has kind of helped her. um, People give her the benefit of the doubt for some of the other things that she's said and done.
0: Patricia, we know about her political a uh, strength in northwest georgia. i mean look her opponent spent more than 16 million her democratic opponent spent more than 16 million dollars. that's more than a lot of presidential candidates raise um and she still won by about 30 or so points last year. but look she's also in congress. she's gone from pariah to power broker under The then speaker Kevin McCarthy. We're not sure where her clout stands right now. As Tia said, we know that she has, you know, she has Donald Trump's back, and Donald Trump has her back. But we're we're going to soon find out how much influence she has in this new Congress now that there is a new speaker in um, uh, in Mike. Who's the new speaker, folks? Mike, <laughs> Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson. As you <laughs> easy just said, to forget. That's yeah, okay. I know, easy to forget. A very <laughs> generic name. But Mike Johnson is the new speaker with new <laughs> debates over Ukrainian funding and Israeli military aid looming.
1: Yeah. And Mike Johnson is quite, quite conservative, as is Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Greene. So I don't expect them to have any major, major disagreements. Uh, to me, the really fascinating question about Marjorie Taylor Greene is... Um, along with her future inside the House, because it probably will never get as good as it was with Kevin McCarthy. It's a very unique relationship. Um, Is what happens next with the Trump base after Donald Trump? And to me, that's where Marjorie Taylor Greene stands to play her largest role. Because when you go to Trump rallies, and she is with him at rallies in Arizona and Illinois and New Hampshire. She is all over the country with him. I don't know if he has a rally Without her, when he toured a South Carolina gun store, she was literally right over his right shoulder. She was she's just like him on glue. Um, To me, it's not about being Trump's VP. It's about being the next Trump. She is beloved by that base of people. She doesn't have to be consistent on policy. Donald Trump is not consistent on policy. She just has to be a lightning rod sticky easy to watch you want to watch more she's she has their anger but also gives them a place to put it and so to me she is the future of the trump energy as it stands right now he's 77 he's not getting older just like uh joe biden so to me that's where she really stands to 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 be the most interesting person to watch
4: you all reported in the Joels this morning And Marjorie Taylor Greene suggested that perhaps she wants to run for president at some point.
0: Yeah, let's listen to that audio. WMUR's Adam Sexton asked Marjorie Taylor Greene if she should be considered a possible presidential candidate down the road.
2: Maybe, we'll see what happens. I certainly love my country and I'll do everything I can to protect it.
4: And and it's exactly to Patricia's point. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene may wanna be Donald Trump's vice president, but as Patricia has pointed out, What she really wants is to be the next Donald Trump and to pick up that enormous uh, right wing Republican conservative base that Donald Trump uh, has cultivated and has so strongly in his corner.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the question is, can anybody really be the next Donald Trump? There will always be a right wing figure in this country, you know, for the next 5, 10, 20 years. That's pretty clear. Uh, uh, Once we uh, featured Marjorie Taylor Greene in The Jolt this morning, somebody from New Hampshire emailed us a photo of a half full room in New Hampshire that uh, certainly she was a lightning rod for the reporters in the room. But could she really fill up a room in a New Hampshire GOP?
3: Maybe not. Yeah. And that's something as we look at this crowded presidential primary on the GOP side, a lot of people, including Florida Governor DeSantis, thought that they could catch the energy of the party by being just like Trump, but less problematic. But what DeSantis has learned is that has not worked. And I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene would try to do what DeSantis did as far as parting with Trump and becoming a rival of Trump. But the question is, do Republican voters Even if Trump were to, you know, go off into the sunset somewhere for some reason, um, do they want someone to fill his shoes or is this just lightning in a bottle that Donald Trump captured? And um, it's it's about him, the cult of personality that is him himself.
4: You know, Greg, one of the things I'm curious about is you you pointed out that Kevin McCarthy made uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene a power. Uh, in the House uh, Republican conference because she got on board with him early on, a very shrewd move on her part, and you asked the question of whether she'll have the same power with him gone. Well, the other question would be, what happens if Donald Trump uh, fades? What happens, we know he's by far the leading uh, uh, candidate for the Republican nomination, but what happens if circumstances uh, take him down? He does not become the nominee, And what happens if he then loses to Joe Biden if he is the nominee? Where is Marjorie Taylor Greene at that point?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And we were talking about this earlier. You know, look, most Republican elected officials have not taken sides in Georgia, at least, have not taken sides in this presidential election. Marjorie Taylor Greene obviously has. Uh, she has not, she's not just in New Hampshire. She's been in Iowa. She's been in South Carolina. Uh, she was at in Milwaukee. I interviewed her in Milwaukee at the first Republican debate. Donald Trump didn't show up. She did as a surrogate for him. Tia, when I go speak to groups, I always have this sort of slide at the end where I talk about how 2020 has catapulted three Georgia figures into serious contention down the line for pres- president or vice president, or whatever. I always say Governor Brian Camp. Senator Raphael Warnock. And the third one is always Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I get gasps from the room, but (laughs) it is what it is. I
3: need to see your slideshow. Yeah, (laughs) right. We want to see. Also, I think that we can't ignore the fact that, let's say, Marjorie Taylor Greene decides it's no longer fun for her in Washington. Could she be looking for a position at the state level? There's talk about whether she would um, try to run for governor in 2026 or run for... You know, Senate. U.S.
0: Senate. She told you she might. Right? Yeah, I In think she's, she's
3: keeping her powder dry. It is Senate. It's Senate that um, that she could be perhaps someone who runs to the right of a Governor Kemp, for example, if he were to run for Senate. Again, this is all a lot of speculation But there are people in Republican circles in Georgia who are convinced Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to run for Senate.
0: Patricia, you know, we didn't get a chance to ask Senator Ossoff about that potential um, 2026 race. We weren't really talking as much politics as policy just now with him. But um, 2026 is on everyone's minds. If you are a top Georgia politician right now, there's already early maneuverings. And as Tia just mentioned, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has, in a way that she did not, just a few years ago, has openly floated the idea, not just of a Senate run, but potentially being Donald Trump's running mate if he does win the nomination next year. Uh, so this is someone we're going to be hearing a lot more of on the national stage.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, it, she one key piece is that she's a fundraising juggernaut. She has such an immense source of millions and millions of dollars, and those small dollar donations really thanks to her ability to get her message out. She has her own podcast. She is on right side broadcasting network just about not 24 hours a day but she's on there a whole lot she really is she has sort of like a direct line through a lot of different uh digital media systems to get to these voters who just want to support somebody and she's right there for them um a quick question if we have time i'd love to ask greg and tia y'all have both been in her district recently and checked in with her voters sometimes when figures go national. They kind of lose the support of their hometown crowd. But I don't know if that's the case in the in the 14th district.
3: I'll see if Greg agrees, but I think her voters still love her. And we're talking about the conservative voters in the district. Not everybody in the 14th district in northwest Georgia supported Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever. I think those voters which are engaged and who are politically aligned with the right, even if they don't, you know, it's kind of what you hear from Trump. Like, I don't like everything she says. Sometimes I wish she would cool it on social media. But I like that she's a fighter. I like that she's going there and she's not going to let them change her. And she says what she believes. So she still has a lot of support
0: in her district. And the other thing to keep in mind is that as lawmakers go back to redraw the political lines uh, later next month, her district is likely to actually get redder. Mm. More conservative, because when lawmakers redrew the lines a couple of years ago, they added a few Cobb County precincts that were very Democratic leaning, didn't really affect the overall makeup of the district. She still easily won reelection. But those are also majority minority or majority black districts that could easily be put into a new majority black district that Judge Steve Jones uh, drew up for this district bill.
4: Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And won't those Cobb County Democrats be happy if they are drawn out of Marjorie Taylor Greene's district? There was a lot of kind of shock and uh, anger about the fact that uh, people who were Democratic-leaning, at the very least, suddenly (laughs) were being represented by one of the most conservative uh, members of the U.S. House.
0: See, I want to touch on something you've been also following very closely when it comes to Congressman, Congresswoman Green. She's also pushing to censure Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, a Michigan Democrat, for speaking at a recent rally in Washington calling for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Tlaib is the lone Palestinian-American in Congress and a frequent critic of Israel. And Tlaib called Marjorie Taylor Green unhinged.
3: Yeah, this one is kind of a proxy for some of the— con- some of the concern on the far right that there are progressive Democrats who are too willing to to criticize Israel, and Talib is part of like the squad that has been accused, kind of throughout her tenure in Congress for being too critical of Israel. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene calls it an insurrection because what happened was Tlaib was speaking to a crowd. They started to protest loudly inside the Capitol complex, not at the Capitol, but in an office building. There were some arrests because they were making too much noise. Now, to Marjorie Taylor Greene, that was an insurrection on the same level as January 6th. A lot of people think that's ridiculous because those protesters, A, weren't trying to stop Congress mm-hmm. from doing its job. And B, there was no bloodshed, no injuries, no violence, so to speak. Um, but she wants to c- censure Tlaib. There are some, even some Republicans who say we shouldn't censure a member of Congress for essentially expressing their First Amendment right to speak, even if we disagree with what she said.
4: Um, I And Tia, as long as we're talking about this now, I probably should make a slight adjustment to what I said about Marjorie Taylor Greene and support for Israel to Senator Ossoff. And you helped, uh, helped me see the nuance in her statement. I said she had announced that she didn't want to send new funds to Israel. I think you made it clear. Her statement is... Israel is already getting a lot of money from the United States, and if they need more, we'll have to consider whether, uh, I, I'd have to consider whether I'd approve those funding. So it's a little bit more nuanced, and I apologize for overcharacterizing that.
3: Yeah, I think it's, um, but I think it's nuanced. And, and we know, mm-hmm. it, what it. what's your, to your point, I think you were trying to make, Bill, it is not a full-throated, let's give Israel more money that you're seeing from the vast majority of members of Congress, she is expressing a little bit more caution, a little bit more, let's wait and see and make sure it's justified. Uh, And that's where she's approaching, but it isn't, it is also different than what she says about Ukraine, which is she is a no on more money for Ukraine flat out.
0: Yeah. Uh, And Patricia, of course, you know, the other major or another major critique of Marjorie J. greenes call for a censure is that she herself was of course, Um, uh, is the subject of censure acts over the first couple terms of her of her stint in congress and and ended up being demoted for some of the things that she put on social media
1: yes and her defense at the time was i have a first amendment right to say what i'd like to say even if it's unpopular on the left so you know i think we'll hear uh, some of the same defenses but it certainly is a um it's I won't call it hypocrisy, but
3: others have. Pot, meat, kettle,
1: maybe.
0: Well, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, a Donald Trump supporter in Alabama now faces federal charges after making violent threats against Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and Sheriff Pat Labatt. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast in the Morning Jolt newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox every weekday afternoon if you're a subscriber to the AJC. Go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Fonnie Willis issued warning after warning after warning that she and her staffers were facing violent threats after she brought charges against Donald Trump and his allies. Now we have the first federal charges stemming from this fallout. A federal grand jury in Atlanta charged Arthur Ray Hansen of Huntsville with two counts of threatening to injure Vonnie Willis and Sheriff Pat Labatt, according to the indictment, was just issued a few days ago. Hanson called the county's customer service line on August 6th, about a week before Donald Trump was indicted, and first left a threatening and expletive voice filled voicemail for the sheriff. Um, I want to play some audio that we exclusively obtained. Uh, a couple weeks ago from Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis talking to a private group of supporters about the attacks she's endured since launching her investigation into the former president. Let's listen.
3: If you are a leader, you're going to be attacked. And so there are some days I'm human and I'm really angry or I'm hurt that somebody would tell a bold-faced lie on me. I mean, I think the craziest is I was sleeping with a gangbanger. I'm like, a 17-year-old? Like, what? I'm like, I'm old. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, all you have these personal moments where you're like, why am I being personally attacked? And all I'm out here trying to do is my job. And in the reading of that scripture, what it told me is, you ain't special. That if you are a leader and you are put in a position that people are going to lie on you and they're going to attack you, but you have to still do what is the mission. And the mission here is that we keep society safe, that everyone is equal, and that the law is protected.
0: Bill, you can hear you know voices in the background. You can hear piano playing. That this was funny Willis at a fundraiser in a Metro Atlanta restaurant uh, for her 52nd birthday, and there was a few dozen or so of her most staunchest supporters in there who had, who had um, contributed to a fundraiser in honor of her birthday. But look, you can hear in her voice, in her words, in stark detail, in a way that we really hadn't heard before. Um, a you know the toll this is taking, but also the approach in which she's responding to some of these attacks.
4: Yeah. And, you know, I have to say that I go back uh, to the most intense days of Trump and his allies trying to overthrow the results of the election when Gabe Sterling of the Secretary of State's office stood on the Capitol step, on the steps of the leading up to the third floor of the Capitol and said, someone is going to get hurt or killed if this kind of rhetoric, um, continues and um shea moss ruby freeman who became famous is an odd word to use but were repeatedly uh the subject of threats when uh, as election workers when lies were told about them trying to rig the fulton county election so now you have arthur ray hansen of huntsville who sent obscene laden messages to Fonnie Willis and Pat LeBad. And here's what's interesting to me. Um, Patricia, she says, if he says, if you think you're going to take a mugshot before the uh, 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 former president turned himself in, of quote, my president, Donald Trump. And I find that an interesting phrase because that's the way Donald Trump has conditioned his supporters to feel about him. He is my president. He speaks for me, and I think that phrase tells us a lot.
1: Yeah, well, and Fonnie Willis isn't the only official. And of course, along with Sheriff Pat Labatt, uh, Senator Raphael Warnock, shortly after January 6th, had death threats issued against him that were so severe, the man from Queens who issued those threats was sentenced to 33 months in prison because he not only issued those threats, but also uh, was found when police uh, raided his home to have ammunition. And that was not allowed because he had already committed a felony. So it's just not just rhetoric. It's not just violent threats. It can turn dangerous so quickly. So we know multiple members of the Georgia delegation who have their own security teams. Um, there are threats against the um, Nearly all of them. Their security details are very low profile. They don't want to advertise it. So it is a it's a balancing act between when do you speak out about these threats and when do you not? When do you want to not bring any more attention to it than it than it already has? But I do think that Fannie Willis, not only in that uh, private fundraiser, but even in August, in those days when this threat was made, she spoke out days before that other threats had been made against her as well as her staff that she called grotesque and said that this is a very real, very dangerous situation that they were all living through. And then she went on to indict the president. That's what I find especially fascinating.
3: Yeah. And that's why there are so many conditions that have been put on former President Trump. Um, We know there are conditions of his bond release in Fulton County that um, tells him he can't say some of the things he had been saying prior to being indicted. There are gag orders, both in the federal case in Washington and in the case in New York to prevent him from uh, criticizing officers of the court, potential witnesses, uh, uh, the jury. Again, I know that there are concerns raised by Trump and his supporters about his First Amendment rights, but um, the what the courts have said is you can't put People in jeopardy. You can't threaten them. You can't say things that could invite harassment or violence upon them, even as you try to stake your claim as to claiming your innocence. So um, that's why those exist. It And yes, he's been fined a couple of times in that New York case. But in general, it looks like some of those limitations are working. We haven't seen as much directly from former mm-hmm. President Trump since those uh, since he made bail in Fulton yeah. County, for example, he doesn't speak about Fonnie Willis the way he used to.
0: And in that audio we just played, you know, she was she was bringing up, she was evoking one of the attacks that Donald Trump had made against her, you know, months earlier. The, you know, I don't even want to repeat them. It was a, it was a flat out lie. But Bill, this always this also reminds me of a, of a different element of this is that Fonnie Willis might be the most prominent, the most famous D.A. in the nation, right? And a few years ago, even many of her constituents wouldn't have been able to identify her. She joked that Jack Smith, the special counsel, wouldn't even know how to pronounce her name. Well, now a lot of people, now it seems like everyone knows how to pronounce her <laughs> yeah, name.
4: Yeah, clearly Fonnie Willis is on the lips of many, certainly journalists around the country are writing about her extensively. And I think anyone who's been following Trump's travails knows who uh, Fonnie Willis is, Um she does, and you you make this uh, uh, point indirectly, Greg, she's got to run for re-election again uh, next year. Uh, and uh, her fame as a result of this case could be of enormous help to her in a Democratic uh, county. But we never know exactly how that's going to play
0: out. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, obviously, Fulton County is one of the biggest Democratic strongholds in the state. We don't know of a, of a premier of a prominent Republican running against her. But Patricia, I, I would expect... Any Republican to run, I I do expect a Republican to run, and anyone who would run will try to turn this into sort of a proxy battle over uh, her decision to indict Donald Trump and and, and 18 of his allies.
1: A hundred percent. I'm sure a Republican will run because they themselves will then achieve quite a bit of notoriety as well. So she'll be, you know, she'll be ripe for a Republican to run against her. I think she also um, most likely will get criticized for conditions at the Fulton County Jail. She will get criticized for. Um, uh, the length of time that some of these trials are taking for the number of people who remain unindicted. Those are all concerns to her that even her office brings up to us. So she, they know that those are things um, that they're working through as well. But I think that she um, electorally should really have no problem in Fulton County. Those are not complaints that we hear uh, about taking her down and people running against her, a serious challenge, Um, to the point that Shirley Franklin, the former mayor of Atlanta, recently posted on her own social media that she supports Fannie Willis for re-election and for whatever she might want to run for in the future. And that led to me getting flooded with loads of texts of Shouldn't we be considering Fannie Willis as one of those state potential
0: statewide officials in 2026? And look, we certainly are as a potential attorney general candidate, potential candidate for something higher, higher office. We'll see, um, but we know that it's a very fraught environment right now, and Fannie Willis has 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 a. You know, and now it seems a national fundraising case, but also um, all the downfalls that come with that.
3: And I think it's so interesting, particularly as a Democrat, because at the end of the day, she's a prosecutor. She's a cop. And we've seen other Democrats who struggle to relate to their base. Kamala Harris um, continues to face criticism because of her background as a prosecutor and former attorney general within progressive politics. Just the questions about her tenure and the decisions she's made. Um, people have tried to use that against Fannie Willis, but so far she's um, remained popular in a lot of ways because Democrats approve of her RICO investigation.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 in the morning. Or look for us in your favorite podcast apps app sometime around 1 p.m. each day. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: And I'm Ned Ravone, Lifestyle columnist. Atlanta's thriving arts scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are
0: important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash ATL.
3: Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.